Hello, hello, and welcome to another episode of People with Purpose. Actually, we've got a bit of a uh, mini-series of episodes of People with Purpose because uh, I've had the great pleasure and honour of interviewing Johnny Ball, who is a uh, legend of, of children's uh, television, uh, but has also done a lot in the corporate world as well and has literally helped hundreds of thousands of, of people uh, to engage with the very challenging uh, subjects of uh, science and maths that are very challenging to many people. Also, however, uh, he's made a lot of people laugh and, uh, and Johnny made me laugh a lot in the interview that I did with him. He talked a lot about love and the importance of uh, loving people and the importance of, of people loving you. He talked a lot about science and maths and uh, how that played a massive part in his life. He talked a lot about the comedians that he's, uh, you know, known and worked with in his in his career, uh, and and the great experience he has, and the brilliant advice. Uh, he's also got some what you might call contrarian views. Now, I'm a very firm believer in everybody having the opportunity to say what it is that they think. And even if that is contrary to the popular narrative or popular wisdom, however you, however you describe it, and, uh, and that those views should be heard. And I think it is good for everyone to uh, challenge their thinking and, and look at things from the other end of the telescope. There you go, Johnny Ball. Hope you enjoy the show. Uh, there's going to be three episodes. Thanks for listening, and I'll catch you soon. Here's the show. So welcome to another episode of People with Purpose. Uh, today, uh, I'm, I'm really, really delighted to welcome uh, Johnny Ball, uh, who is a, a lifelong uh, communicator for 25 years, worked for the, the BBC, uh, writing and presenting Think of a Number and Think Again before going on to the ITV uh, with uh, Johnny Ball Reveals All. And as the author of uh, nine books and with your work in, there you go, hang on, look, I've got one of those as well. I've got one of those. So ball of, balls oh, of confusion. Yeah, there you go. Um, uh, so I think it's nine books and your work in the, in the corporate world uh, and your one-man theatre show, Wonders Beyond Numbers. You've brought mass and science. Oh, there you go. You see, there's a flyer. There's a promo coming. I can feel a promo coming. Uh, and there's, uh, you brought maths and science to life uh, for definitely three, possibly four generations and wow. uh, including including in my family so um i came to see you in the 80s when i was at school uh probably at the bbc uh, i probably came to a live recording i expect of uh of, of think of a number i expect in the 80s and then about um seven or eight years ago at the king's school notary st mary uh my, i brought my daughter along to come and see you uh, as well um and um and the good news is we both past our well I, I got an o-level and my daughter got a gcse in math so thank you johnny for that i had nothing to do with me that's all <laughs> brilliant brilliant so uh, but thank you for coming on the show it's a, it's a real pleasure good good yeah it's good to be here so where are you calling from today right i live uh, uh south bucks or north slough <laughs> it tends depends, depends. we've got the same postcode as the queen which is SL, so that's right. I'm a yeah, place called Farnham Common. I've been here 42 years, or three. Yeah, something like that. Right, roughly. <laughs> we can do rounding. In, in maths, we can do rounding, can't we? We can, we can, yeah. yeah. Good, 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 good. And yeah, so, but, uh, so you, you, you're... Rounding you're, 70, yeah, right. 
grinding up to 70, yeah. Okay, so uh, so what are you uh, working on at the minute? I'm always working on something. I was on the telly on on Tuesday on Steph's packed lunch, which was fine, and I enjoyed doing it. I had to go up to Leeds, and went to the wrong hotel, thought it was the wrong studio, but I got there and, and had a, a good time and plugged my next show, which is on Easter Monday, at South End on Sea at the Palace Theatre, South End on Sea, two o'clock in the afternoon, and uh, so I plugged that and and got a few gags in, a few laughs in, so it's all right. So um, I do that. I've got in June. I've got a talk. We tried to track somebody down who could do a talk on Blackpool, its history and the history of the comedians who played there, and we couldn't find anybody. And I said, well, I'll do it myself. So I'm doing it because I've met so many of the comedians, the old comedians, um, and worked with them and did uh, a few series, uh, seasons in Blackpool. Met my wife in Blackpool during a season. Um, and, uh, and, and I know, I know a lot about it, you know. I've just, I've just, I've just <laughs> written a game this morning, it came to me, is we're actually dining on the tower ballroom floor. The famous tower of about 400 people, and I'll be speaking to them and point out that it is a sprung floor. It is for the dancers a sprung floor. You can tell because if a not too light waitress goes past, your soup trembles. (laughs) And then I point out the ceiling is so beautifully painted. How did they paint it? How did they get up there? The sprung floor. (laughs) (laughs) So these are my opening gags for that. So I'm working on that now. So Brilliant. always working on something. Excellent, excellent. So I did, um, I, go on. I've written, very recently, I've written, because I've done uh, my maths book, uh, one of Beyond Numbers, which was the history of maths. Mm. And I love it so much that I've put 60 of these stories and ideas to rhyme now. And 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 I've, I've got them right. And I use a couple in the show. The, the, the one I use, I can do for you very quickly. A mathematical, math, it's the only limerick of the whole lot. A mathematical chap called Thales performed maths tricks with consummate ease. He showed how you might find a pyramid's height or the height of a building or tree. He said, first take a rod, pole or stick, quite long when it needn't be thick, plant it firm in the ground till the bit above ground is one metre tall exactly. Then wait for a nice sunny day, and as they shine down the sun's rays, will cast, I'll be bound, shadows too on the ground. That's the stick and the building or tree. So measure the length of them both. Yes, the stick and the tree shadow both. On the stick shadow's length, to divide it into the length of the building or tree will show thee the height of the thing, be it tree or building, in metres, as plain as can be. Boom, boom. Fantastic. That's brilliant. Excellent. Good, good, good. I, and I love, I love the way that you bring together maths, science, which can, can be quite, you know, hard to access as subjects for, for 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 lots and lots of people and you bring that to life with stories with songs with humor i love that, that- it, well I, the reason i do that i think is because i go to schools and i see that the curriculum is bereft of any excitement it 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 really is it's turgid in primary it's predominantly numeracy and the greeks didn't do numeracy at all the greeks didn't bother to give their numbers names one, they call it A, two, they call it B, three, they call it C, alpha, beta, gamma, and so on. So they didn't do numeracy. Now, we, we riddle the kids with numeracy, and you frankly don't use or need numeracy because you've got this kind of thing, and you can do it. And it's a, so, so to spend most of the time on numeracy in primary, and then most of the time 
in secondary on statistics, when once again, machines do statistics, it's preposterous. And there's so much color in mathematics. There's so much wonder, especially in geometry. And it's understanding of geometry that turns you into designers, builders, engineers, architects, all those things. And that's why, that's what's missing. So that's what I do. And I've made a career, if you like, of repairing the mass curriculum. <laughs> yeah. Well, it, and it is, it is brilliant. I mean, I remember when I saw, when I came to see you in, in Devon, you spent a fair bit of time talking about the very, very close relationship between mathematics and art. And that yeah. was something that I just wasn't, wasn't aware of. And, and, the, and the, the link between the two being geometry, I guess. Absolutely, absolutely. It, it was, it, da Vinci discovered mathematics late, and then he wrote, anyone devoid of mathematics as an artist is wallowing in the dark. You've got to understand the matter and perspective, he understood, and mm. things like that, and, and he immediately tried to show it. And a lady wrote to him and said, now you've left El Moro, a chap he worked for for 20 years, um, I'm sure you have time to paint my portraits. And he had a message sent back, Leonardo has now discovered mathematics and can no longer stand the sight of a paintbrush. <laughs> Fantastic. <laughs> That's beautiful. So, uh, so Johnny, tell us your story then. So, so you, you've, you've, we, know, we know what you're doing now. Where did it start and how did you, how did you get to, to here? Well, I was born in Bristol because my mother was there and I wanted to be near my mother when I was born. <laughs> <laughs> So that's what started. And I, I was there till I was 11. And my, my, my dad was a wonderful man who never had a chance in life. He would have been a great stand-up comedian. And he did a lot of jokes and everything. And he sang well and everything. But he never had a chance because in his late teens through his 20s, he was on the dole for most of the time in the terrible depression of the 1920s. And the only job he could get, he went to London and was digging digging foundations for Orpington, which was a new town. And he was the only non-Irishman doing that. And eventually he got a, a, a job, the job he was trained at. What was he trained at? Making parts for the end of looms in, in Lancashire's cotton industry. Straight out of school, straight across the road, into a foundry, which is a terrible job. And that was the thing he was actually very skilled at. But there was no prospects in that. And he had, he'd never had a chance and he was definitely the funniest man I ever uh, met. And he used to say things like, they split the atom, you know. Oh, that's going to lead to incredible discoveries. And, and things like that. They've got this flying bedstead. It's a, it's a vehicle that takes off vertically. How about that? <laughs> and these he fed into me. And I go, what? You know, because I was a young teenager, eight, nine, ten, whatever. But, oh, it rubbed off on me. Mm. And, it, and his love of maths as well. And his love of games. So we played... Five and threes dominoes before I could pick them up when I was five or six. And I used to play with double nine dominoes. Don't buy your kids double six dominoes, they're for wimps. You buy double <laughs> nine dominoes, which have got one to nine plus zero in the blank. And so you've got all 10 digits. And they're great for doing basic numeracy before your kids even go to school. Mm. Okay, so do get double nine dominoes. Mm -hmm. And so he, he did that, bought me a... a, a well, he found a billiard table, which had been uh, wrecked and ripped and knocked about, but at a slate bed, and he salvaged that. And he gave me that when I was eight for my birthday, a, a billiard table, just after the war, that was 45. And how he got the money to, make, to buy the balls, I don't know, 
full set of snooker balls and all the other things. And he covered it himself, redid the sponges and the cushions. My mother met crochet the pockets and everything. And he gave me that when I was eight. And when I was 11, he let me win a game. <laughs> that, that is training. That really is training. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Brilliant. Yeah, three years of hard graft then to get that first yeah. triumph. Fair yeah. play. So, um, so what was childhood like for you then? What was school it like was for you? Right. You know, in Bristol, it was all right. We, we, my dad was on nights through the war. And my mother worked during the day. Um, uh, we, there were three blitzes, and I remember them. I remember we went to an air shelter for one. Um, that was Bristol. Um, and we, the second one, we went under the stairs. And the third one, we just went under the kitchen table. We were getting very blasé about it. And uh, again, you know, I, I was, um, what, this is 1940. I'm two, two and a half, mm. three, you know, getting number three. Mm. And I remember it. I remember them all. And I remember, I remember nobody in the Second World War was depressed and down. Nobody. I don't remember anything as I grew up straight through it. They were all very, very positive. And there's so much ne negativity today and the kids get so worried about it's the way th th life has access for them. They get lots and lots of worries, worries about themselves, about their self and their self-importance. Far too early. And I, I worry about that tremendously. And, uh, and we're, we're now seeing, of course, in Ukraine, that the Ukrainians are very upset and but but their bravery already is showing and their undaunting spirit mm. is there. Yeah. It's now. Okay. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yes. And um, yeah, these are challenging times. I mean, my, my daughters are sort of 16 and 18 now, yeah. but they've grown up as what they call digital natives, uh, yeah. which, which to my mind means never a moment's peace. Yeah. Whereas right. when I was growing up, I, I don't, I don't use the mobile phone. Right. I have a mobile phone, and I use it to say, "Die, I'm in the car. I'll be home in 45 minutes." Bye. That's what my use, total use of my phone. Mm. Okay, mm. and I don't don't bother it. I'm on the computer all the time, and of course, I can get everything on the computer, and I can communicate with everybody. But I definitely do not sit there going, mm, 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 mm. you know, it's no, it's soul, soul destroying. It, I I might be wrong, you know. We you know the older generation are very often wrong. We don't move forward as the kids are moving forward. But to me, it seems that their, their inward focus on a little machine stops their um their, their the wider vision, and it, they don't talk enough to strangers. You know, they're very nervous of strangers very often. My dad could never stand in a bus queue. He never had a car. Could never stand in a bus queue without talking to everybody in the bus queue. And I'm the same. And I love to go to the pub now. I have two pints, right? And I go to the pub about three or four times a week and to talk to anybody who wants to talk about anything. And it's just lovely to communicate and get some jokes going and, and have a laugh. And it's, it's lovely, but it's not raucousness. But it's just wanting to meet people and communicate with people. And that's what kids have got to do. You've got to mix with everybody. You've got to learn to love everybody around you. And if you do that, then you have no, your racial inhibitions go at the window. There's a wonderful book I'm going to recommend. <clears throat> Humankind, Human, K with a small K, yeah. by this Dutchman, yeah. Roger uh, Bergman, right? 
I, I do recommend it to anyone. And it shows how kind people naturally are, how, how it, it explains from today how the Russian convoys are not functioning well. It explains that in the First World War, not more than 15, 16% of soldiers ever fired a gun at a person. It is not in our nature. And once you understand that, you have a much greater feeling for humanity. And, and this, this preposterous not letting um, ref refugees in, even those with connections in, in England, it, oh my, our politicians make so many very, very bad mistakes. And that's what the book tells us, the mistakes that politicians make. And, um, and read that, and I think you'll ha have a better view of the world. Okay, that's good advice to everybody. And, and with with this show, we'll be putting that in the show notes, and anything else that pops up, there's a show notes that go with the podcast, and we'll we'll, we'll stick that in there so people can go and go and find that and, and read it. Right. Good. Good. Brilliant. Good. good. Brilliant. So, um, you just must have discovered a love of maths at some point. When was that? It, yeah, it was. <clears throat> it was. It was early with my dad, and and. Uh, he just, with no, he made a bagatelle table, you know, with the, the balls that go upside, with a, you know, and you fire them, and they, and they drop in holes. Mm. And I would calculate those. They're all in fives, five, 10, 15, 20, 25, up to 50. And I would calculate those as the balls went in very, very quickly before I went to school, before I went to school. So when I was at school, I was always top. And when I was, we were seven, I remember when we were seven, shouting, going, we want homework. We want homework on our desks. So the teacher must have been doing something right, you see. And he said, you don't get homework till you're nine. We want homework. So he, in those days, the copying machine was a very oily, smelly uh, affair. And you got these awful oily sheets of paper with a hundred sums, simple addition, then subtraction, then multiplication, then division. And he would say, there's a hundred. If you do 10, I'll be happy. And about four of us did the hundred every night. We got them while we listened to the radio, no television. So we listened to the radio, wholesome radio, nothing to hide the kids from. And my dad would be in the chair, my mother would be in the other chair, perhaps knitting a, a, a rug or something like that. <laughs> and, uh, and I would do those and so happy. So I love maths. I've always loved maths. And I love the, so, so. What happened at school? So we moved when I was 11 to, to Bolton. And in those days before television, 1949, being in Bolton with a Bristol accent, it was like talking Urdu. They couldn't understand. I was talking like that. Hello, I'm from Bristol. You're right. And they couldn't understand me. You see, my father, you up, your father, I, my father, you know. And and so so they used to stand me in the corner and make me talk and all laugh, you know, me speaking. And uh, I passed my 11 plus. So I went to the school. And in the first year, I got the mass prize and I got a chess prize. I never played chess before, but I started playing chess and I got the junior chess prize and the mass prize in the first year. But I didn't get on, but that was all right. But there was pressure from teachers, and my parents had no pressure, no no push. And so I was in Form 2B, and the next year I was in 3C, which is the second maths and science grade, not 3A, and I never knew why. But the teacher was so awful, 
and I had I had an injury, I a, a terrible injury. I jumped over a bush off a wall, and the bush had been sharpened, and it went where the, the sun don't shine. And nearly killed me, nearly killed me. They got me to hospital, and the the, the surgeon said, "Really, you're a fraction of that." killing you, uh, ruining your internal organs. So I lost half of the autumn term and nobody helped me get it back. And so the following year, I was in form 4D. That was languages, including Latin, which I hated, and French I didn't bother about. So the next year I was in lower 5E, and the last year I was in 5E because they didn't have a 5F. And I took, I, I failed English language, English literature and history because I didn't do any homework. I, I passed geography and I got 100% in maths and I hadn't taken a note for two years. And at last, the senior mistress started, came in to the, my class. She'd never been in our class before. And she suddenly said, which one is ball? And I, for me, five years I've been in school, she didn't even know which I was, right? And then she said, come and explain what this maths you've done. And she said, you were never taught that. I said, no, but it's obviously very And she said, well, you were never taught that. And she suddenly said, you've got, you've got a brilliant mathematical brain. But I got two O levels and was out. But luckily, I got a job with the Haviland Aircraft Corporation because the, the son of the Haviland himself had just come down from Cambridge and he was a cracking just past student lad. And he looked at my maths. He said, you've got brilliant maths. And I did a test for him. He said, that's 100% in no time at all, faster than anybody else. He said, so you can have a job if you get three more O-levels. So I did that, got the three more O-levels, and I was going to be on a business course to be a custom works or industrial accountant. And I said, not for the rest of my life. <laughs> <laughs> so suddenly the forces loomed up, and I, all the people who were great friends of mine were lads a bit older than me coming out of the forces, and there were only two kinds, those who hated national service and those who loved it. And the ones who loved it were the optimistic ones. And they said to me, get in there, John, volunteer for everything. And, they, and some of them said, why don't you sign on and do three years instead of two? Because you get double the money from day one. And when you're 18, 19, 20, what is money but beer money? <laughs> That's what it is. Yeah. And I went one 24-hour period in three years without a drink, which is another story. <laughs> so, so, and I went in the RAF. And because I volunteered uh, for three years i chose my career and i went into radar operator and came top of my class because i was overqualified for it and um and because i thought i'll get to singapore or perhaps hong kong because the biggest chance of getting abroad a, a long distance abroad was in radar so i got the easiest course radar operator and they said well done the whole course is going to germany and we're sending you to Wales. <laughs> so I went to Wales and Aberporth, which is the guided missile testing station, and air-to-air -air and ground-to-air missile testing station, and the modern radar technology testing area. So I was with boffins, surrounded with boffins, and loved every single minute of it and absorbed so much. And, that, and had three years in the RAF, and not one unhappy day. Mm, mm. Fabulous. That was my university. And I just loved it. And from then on, I'd, I'd got lots of confidence to, to do things. Mm. So I went to Butlins as a red coat. And I was a red coat for three years 
in Smile School. And that is what that is. And once again, three glorious years uh, with Butlins, including a winter for them. And uh, absolutely loved it. And then I became a stand-up comedian, which is what I wanted to be when I was 11. So suddenly um, I'm becoming a stand-up comedian at 22, 23, and turned pro in 1964. Um, 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 in 1964, I turned pro. Mm. And I had 14 years at that. But during that, I also got into play school. And although I loved the clubs, I was very good in the clubs as well, I didn't. The, the act I was doing in the clubs was for the clubs. It was not for television. Mm. I was, was not filthy, but I was cheeky. I was getting towards Max Miller in cheekiness, mm. right? Mm. But never, never as bad as him, you know. I never swore, not one word. Um, but it didn't suit television. I knew it, you know. And when I got into play school, a job I didn't want and got... <laughs> I realized the integrity was so wonderful and I could learn television from the inside. And that's what I did. So then I wrote Think of a Number and finished up writing 20 series of programs. But I didn't write the first one till I was 39. Mm. So I'd had this wonderful career, loving the forces, loving Butlins, loving being a comic, you know, with, with more. I, I bought a Rover 2000, right? For 1400 they were 1400 pounds brand new in those days and i paid for it from the money in my wallet amazing <laughs> from the cash in my wallet they couldn't believe it yeah i said i think i've got 1600 here hang on <laughs> and, and and that's how much i was making as a stand-up comic i was loving it and that week i was working with engelbert humberding and i and he loved we, we got on ever so well i never worked for him again because my agent said we're not paying you enough. You're too good for that. So we came out. So I went back to the clubs, um, and and didn't work with Engelbert again. I, I upset him because I spelled his name backwards. Engelbert Humberdink backwards is Nicolette Tremblebot. <laughs> <laughs> Brilliant. So there they are. So that's um, and suddenly they asked me if I'd do a show on my own. If I write a show on my own, because I was writing for Playaway, writing all the jokes for Playaway. Because I collected jokes by the million, you know, and I was writing, um, doing a lot of writing there. And I, and, and I realized writing was where I was going. And um, so uh, they said, if you had your own series, what would you do? I said, I think I'd do a program on maths. And they went. <laughs> so they let me try a pilot. And when I did the pilot, there's about 15 people in the room, in a, a rehearsal room, um, you know, uh, with a with a toilet roll, cardboard toilet roll for a phone and things like that, you know, it just mm. rehearsed them. Yeah. And I did it just like a stand-up first 25 minutes, not one pause. And they all stood and applauded. And it was, and I, we knew we were on a winner with Think of a Number. And that's what, and we won BAFTA in the first year, um, in the first series. So, and I was, it, I was in dreamland, dreamland. Mm. And uh, lovely. It, it was it was brilliant. I mean, so it sounds like what you've what you've done there is you've combi combined a very early passion for making people laugh and ent yeah. and entertaining people with a, with a with a very early recognition that you liked and you were good at maths and found that and put those two things together and people, yeah, people surrounded at Butlins by and and the forties by all all friends. Everybody was your friend, mm. and at Butlins, everybody wants to and you're in a red coat they they think you're exotic if you like and it's all lovely and and it's loving people back 
is the secret, really. And I do, I really do. Um, that's why when I'm attacked by pressure groups, as I am occasionally, you know, I, I despair for the kind of humans they're turning into. Yeah, yeah. And that's the trouble, it, isn't it? When you when you put yourself out there and, and you and you, you put yourself forward because you've got something to to give you've got something to to help other people in a way yeah. you end that's that's when you end up making yourself a bit more vulnerable isn't it yeah yeah <clears throat> i uh, only one in all the programs i wrote so it's 20 series of programs and every time if i do them in if i did them in sixes which we usually did i would have seven ideas put seven ideas on my wall there's wall charts used to be up there where my calendar is now um with not a lot on it because at my age there's not a lot on my calendar um and co with covid it's decimated a lot of it but it's coming back so so that and i had seven programs ju just so that if one failed i had the seventh one to pick up quickly to complete the series in, in the time allotted and i only failed in writing one and that was the one on alternative energy and it failed because I went to centers of alternative energy and I saw quite preposterous things. I saw a wonderful water wheel and it was a big water wheel. It had to be 10 feet in diameter, big water wheel. Mm. And how did it operate? You turned the tap on. Why? Because they put it in a place where there was no water flowing. <laughs> They all ran, ran around in buggies and electric buggies like golf carts. And I said, where are they from? Oh, we charge those on the mains. I said, no, surely you make the electricity yourself. She said, oh, we don't make that much. And they had they had buildings. They had a house with walls this, this thick, really this thick, you know. Mm. And it was freezing cold inside because the heat from outside didn't get in, you know. Mm. I thought, this is, you know, and double, double glazing. Mm. You know, uh, and we had that in, when I was in the forces in Germany, built in 1936 for the troops by the Germans. We had double glazing, and it was fabulous. The billets were fabulous in Germany. Our this idea of a, a modern house where the hate couldn't get escape was dreadful. Mm. It was dark. It was dingy. It was bloody cold. <laughs> and cost a fortune and looked horrible. And so I couldn't write the program. Because you can't get past the easiest way to make electricity is to boil water. And as it turns to steam, it expands 600 times. And if you hold it back, you can get that expansion to happen in seconds. And in doing that, expand 600 times. Imagine what that means. It means that if we could do that with cars, you could reduce a car to a dinky size, to that size, put it in a box, ship it around the world, and then explode it back 600 times you'd have the car hmm. you can't do it, but you can with energy you can with energy and that is the power of it so i alternative energy is always going to be expensive i know people think it's the way and i know a lot of people do so so am i anti that no i write wrote a musical called energy champions and only the other day on television somebody said do you know i saw it and it changed my life Everybody got a new electric light bulb, the new long-lasting light bulb. They were terribly designed, all, but they all still last. And now they're all designed like our lamps normally are designed. The last we got rapid, and our bulbs are much more efficient. And the efficiency is there, but we still need the electricity. And the best way to make electricity is still to boil water mm -hmm. by burning some.
Yeah. You know, yeah. with nuclear, with nuclear, you have no, you know, people worry about nuclear. I did the video for the opening of Tornes nuclear power station. And I saw all the pros about it. And I saw all the cons. And what are the cons? What are the things against it? The outrageous over-costing with layer after layer after layer of security that makes it preposterous. So there are three different methods of shutting down a reactor, right? There's rods, there's granules, and there's gas. But all three are triplicated for each reactor. So that's nine ways, right? There are three desks, and there's only two reactors at Torness, right? And when you look at the ceiling, there are, there are uh, lines on the wall that indicate you've got lead walls that are this thick that will come down at the press of a button so you can isolate all three desks. All three desks operate everything on both reactors, so it's triplicated again. So the cost is now absolutely ridiculous. But that whole control room is copied again on the edge of the site and used for two weeks a year as an exercise just in case the other one breaks down. Mm. And it never has. Mm. So that's why it's so expensive. And I understand the desire for security. I, of course you have. You know, this could be dangerous if it, if it comes off. But, but, but with Fukushima, Fukushima, the only people who suffered were the people who went in to save that reactor. And it didn't blow up, just the electrics went wrong. And people grumble about that, but not one person has died from the radiation there. And 35,000 people were drowned 10 miles down the road, and you never hear that mentioned. 35,000 people drowned by the tsunami, and all people go on about, it's, oh, Fukushima, it could have, it could have been. It, it's just everything's out of kilter. Mm. But as I say, I did this show, um, Energy Champions, we want you to be energy champions. We hope that you be energy champions. You know, save it, don't waste it. Save it, don't waste it. Uh, anyway, uh, and I did a... So here's a chap, you know John Waite, the, the guy who danced with the male partner in Strictly? Yes, yeah. Well, I was with him on Tuesday on Steph's Pat Lunch, and he said, I went to see that show when I was about 14, and I loved it, and you got me energy conscious for ever since. I'm accused of being negative about future energy. And I write a musical to urge people to save it, don't waste it. Yeah. So, so what are people talking about? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I know what I'm talking about with these things. Mm. I've researched it in great depth. And solar will always be expensive and always fall short of the goals. Wind will always fall short of the goals. And the people who build them, build them under a contract that is fail-safe for their profits, whether they damn well work or not. Tell me that that's logic. Mm. Tell me that is logic. Mm. It is crazy. Mm. And that's where I am on this thing. And it's, it's, it's awful because people think, but you, you're heading the wrong way. No, I'm not. We can get better with nuclear. We can get better. Right. So I did a lecture tour in around 1999 to that, a lecture tour for the Verena Holmes Lecture, on a scrubbing system that took the CO2 out of the stuff coming out of coal-fired power stations. I did the lecture. I wrote the lecture. I produced it with me and two uh, students, and then rehearsed somebody else taking my place, three students, 
I think toured British universities saying this is going to work and we're going to scrub the CO2 out of the stuff coming out of power stations. Isn't this going to be great? What happened? Davies, who developed it, have now gone bust. Why? Because everybody said, ah, but it'll increase the part, the charge, the, the, the cost of electricity by 10%. By 10%. What's it going up by now? Oh, well, yeah. Yeah, now now we're we're in um, we're in all sorts of trouble now, aren't we? With with, with the ele- electricity costs and uh, we, but this is thirty years, thirty three years ago. Mm. We had a system for cleaning up the, the stuff. So did got power station, which was brilliantly efficient, but they didn't like the CO two coming out of it. But mm. we could have scrubbed it out. Mm. So who makes these decisions? Do people actually make decisions to send us the wrong way? Mm. Do people actually make decisions to make it more expensive to try and try and bring down society itself? And is that what's happening now? And is it is the almost the inability for many many people to pay their bills over this next six months? Is it in danger of shaking society to its very roots? And that's how serious I am about this. It's mm. very very worrying, mm. and it's all because we keep going the wrong way. Mm. In this, with the science, anyway. So, what what can be done then to 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 get that message across to people? You've got to you, you've got to you've got there are there are a thousand more than a thousand fracking sites in the USA, and the USA is producing more gas than any other country in the world, and more energy than any other country in the world, including Russia. Mm. And um, and and the. The concept that fracking in any way damages water in the water table is fictitious. And think about this. How often, how long have we been drilling oil wells? How long have we been doing drilling gas wells? And how often does the stuff leak out? The integrity of those wells, a mild heat, the integrity is absolutely 100%. And you don't get leakages into the water table. They're all fictitious. And who put those fictitious stories out, among other people? Russia. Thanks for listening to People With Purpose. I hope you've enjoyed the show and are enjoying going on this journey. Please remember to like and subscribe and give us a five-star review. Uh, Tell all your friends. And if you're interested in finding out more about any of the things we've covered in this episode of People With Purpose, just get in touch. All the details are in the show notes. Thanks. Bye.